Hey everybody, welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and uh, we're going to jump right into Ezra and Nehemiah in a moment. Uh, but before we do, if you haven't um, listened to, I just released earlier this week, or last week, I suppose by the time you're listening to this, a bonus episode, uh, a reflection I wrote actually on Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, and uh, that comes from my Substack feed that I launched um, a little while ago, and I do regular writing on there. I do reflections like the one uh, on Mary, and then uh, for paid subscribers, I also do a weekly reflection on uh, the lectionary readings for the weekend. So sometime on the weekend, uh, you'll get something every week on um, the uh, a reflection on the lectionary readings for that Sunday. And, and then some other things as well. And so if you haven't listened to that, I would appreciate you going to listen to that. I, I think you really enjoy it, especially uh, as a Protestant who, you know, didn't grow up in a tradition that really thought about Mary a whole ton. That was kind of my first crack at, um, at uh, writing and thinking and reflecting on her and her life and, and what uh, her life means for us. I actually sent it to my Catholic priest friend, and I got the stamp of approval from him. He he thought it was uh, good insight. So, uh, go ahead and check that out. And uh, with uh, and if you haven't uh, you know checked out the Substack page, my feed yet, uh, there's a link in the description of this episode below uh, that you can click on and go there as well. And so uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy that. And then without further ado, let's jump back into. Ezra, Nehemiah. We got just a few episodes left as we look through the book, and uh, we're going to start the book of Nehemiah today. All right, let's let's jump back into Ezra, Nehemiah. We actually finished uh, the book of Ezra last time, and I'd say that obviously a little, little tongue-in-cheek because I've been kind of saying this entire time that Ezra, Nehemiah are one in uh, one work that uh, we've split up into two works, but uh, they really are one one work, and, and you can even, one of the easiest ways I actually think that you can see that is just how abruptly the, the book of, our book of Ezra ends. It just kind of ends. There's no real resolution or uh, of of any kind, really. The story, if it were to stop there, really doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it's because that's that's not the the end of the story. And so we're gonna pick up uh, Ezra or uh, Nehemiah one through seven. And um, now you'll remember this is uh, the the books of Ezra and Nehemiah have three major sections. Uh, the first is Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7, okay? And this is the three phases of returning, rebuilding, and restoring. And so uh, Nehemiah 1 through 7, what we're going to begin in this episode and, and probably finish in the next, uh, if everything goes according to plan, uh, this is the final kind of subsection. So uh, Ezra 1 through Nehemiah 7 is the first kind of major section. That major section has three subsections and uh, the first one looks at Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, the second one Ezra and the law, and now the third one is going to be Nehemiah rebuilding 
the wall, and then we will go on on from there. And so this is our our third and final kind of subsection, if you will. Um, and so Ezra one through seven. Um, if you haven't looked at the notes, I'm not going to go over this here a ton uh, in the audio, just because I don't think it would be very good. But if you haven't looked at the notes, they're they're in the the description below. And on page 41 of the notes, you'll see uh, the one of the ways that that I think you can lay out. And I didn't I didn't come up with this, ad- admittedly. Um, and so I'm I'm borrowing from uh, commentary here, uh, but that you can lay out this entire section, these seven chapters. Is remember earlier I've talked about a, a chiasm, where it's kind of like a an arrow where there's there's doublets, there's matching pairs. You can actually lay out this entire seven chapter section uh, as a chiasm with doublets uh, going all the way through. And uh, it's pretty incredible to see the organization in this section and how the story uh, is is kind of purposely structured. And it, it culminates, and this I, I will mention, it culminates in Nehemiah 4 with the walls being joined together. And there's we'll, we'll make this observation maybe again when we get there. But in, in 4, 6, it says the walls are joined together. And then in 7 and 8, so the very next verses, it says that Sanballat and Tobiah, which we're going to find are the, are the two, main, two main antagonists, the two main bad guys, uh, they join together in opposition. And so those two words play off each other, and that is the kind of the, the, uh, the center point of the chiasm. That this, the, the turning point is this, we're going to see the, the first part of the of this section is all about the opposition uh, coming against Nehemiah and him forging onward to rebuild the walls, and now he's joining the walls together, and his opposition is joining against him. And so uh, that's going to be kind of the center of the story in in this section uh, anyway. And the other way that you can lay this out is um, in three kind of subsections uh, that kind of focus on the opposition. This is a way to organize it around the opposition because that's a, a recurring theme in this section in particular. Uh, first, the first section, you get opposition against Jerusalem, and then it narrows, and it's opposition against the builders, and then it narrows again, and it's opposition against Nehemiah in particular. And so with with each section, the opposition narrows in scope, and it uh, intensifies. They go from being displeased to then being angry and fighting and causing confusion uh, to, by the end, they're trying to kill Nehemiah and do him actual bodily harm. And so that's kind of how we can lay this out. But this is the story of Nehemiah building the wall. Obviously, I think for most of us, there's certain parts of this story that are more familiar, and this is probably the most familiar part, partly because this is what always gets preached, and there's obviously the great illustration that always gets used about them building with tools in one hand and swords in another and family and clan up against each other 
organized, building the wall together, uh, shoulder to shoulder, right? And every building campaign, you know, for, I don't, you know, the beginning of time, I guess, I don't know, has used that imagery. And that's all fine and good. But so we're, we, we know this part of the story, or at least kind of the broad stroke of it, uh, I think a little bit more. But we'll, we'll go through and um, just make some observations and uh, maybe reflect on a few things, and, uh, and, and we'll go there. So uh, the story opens um, with an introduction both of our author, uh, Nehemiah, right, and um, some chronology. So this part of the story, which later gets combined with part of the Zerubbabel and, and uh, Ezra narratives, this is written by Nehemiah, and, and it begins probably in about 446 BC, which we're told is the, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And uh, so we have a, a pretty clear date. So this is 446 BC. Now remember, the Ezra opened uh, almost 100 years previous to this. So by the when we opened in Ezra 1... Uh, that was at this point almost a hundred years ago, just short of a hundred years. So this is we've now moved chronologically a, a long way forward in time from when the temple was started when they came back with Zerubbabel and they started to rebuild the temples. This is this is a hundred years uh, essentially that has gone by. So that's this is a, a big story. This is a long story. This is. This doesn't happen um, overnight, and and we've reflected on that a little bit in the past of what that means even for the work of God in our own life uh, and in uh, our own communities, that even something like this is drawn out over over generations. And, and part of that is because God is not the kind of God who just comes down and fixes everything for us. He He does His work in and through us, in, particip- in participation with us, meaning we have part of the responsibility uh, and have to take responsibility for what is ours to do by and through and with God's Spirit. And so the story opens. Um, Nehemiah is actually uh, somewhere else. He's in the king's court. And one of his brethren, we're told, uh, Hanani, 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 not sure which way it's, would be the correct way to pronounce it, but he he comes all the way from Judah and he tells um, Nehemiah that the gates are broken down, the walls are in shambles, they're all destroyed with fire. And Nehemiah has this similar, and I, I think we're meant to see this um, this echoing, it has a similar reaction to Ezra and even to Zerubbabel, they are they're moved uh, to prayer. They're moved to tears. Um, we even get this phrase here at, a couple of times at the beginning of Nehemiah's story that the hand of God uh, was on him. We'll come to that here in a minute. But so it, we're we're in the same vein of story, right? And if you remember in one of the previous episodes, I we had talked about how all three of these sections kind of follow the same story uh, organization is you have uh, a king who makes a decree, sends someone to Jerusalem with a task, they face opposition, 
they overcome that opposition, and then there's kind of this anticlimax, right? So Cyrus, he sends Zerubbabel to build the temple. They begin to build the temple, but then it's not what it was supposed to be, and the people of the land oppose them, and it doesn't, and it doesn't, it though the work stalls, right? And then you have uh, Ezra, who's sent by Artaxerxes, and he comes back to bring the people uh, under the, the Torah and reform uh, and bring them, uh, not reform, but bring them back under the, the covenant. Uh, and then he finds that they're all in mixed marriages and they come up with a at least controversial decision of, of what to do. And that's the book ends. They, they don't actually resolve much of it. Right. And so now here we have another, we're going to get another decree. Um, but we pause here. This is a great, I think, point of, of reflection for us is now knowing, this is why all the details matter, now knowing the chronology by just paying attention to that little phrase, this is the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and we can place the date. What is Hanani, uh, what is he referring to? Because I think most of us, have read this or have been told this as if this is kind of still in the time of like Ezra and Zerubbabel, that he's hearing the same report that they heard. Uh, But this is a hundred years later. And people have now been living there for a hundred years. And so what news, what new news is he referring to? I mean, they, but when they got there, he wasn't even, when Zerubbabel first got there, uh, Nehemiah wasn't even alive. He wasn't even born yet. And so what news is he hearing about that is br- causing him to, to come to these kinds of tears? I think the probably the best answer is we can fill in the gap that because of the opposition uh, in Zerubbabel's time and in Ezra's time, uh, that the city either had still not been rebuilt or it had been rebuilt, and this is actually what I think, that it had been rebuilt and it had been partially destroyed again by opposition, that the opposition was so fierce that the gates and the walls were destroyed again. And so this is the new news that Nehemiah is hearing. And he is he's so moved uh, that he uh, goes to the king and the king says, why are you sad? And he says, well, why should I not be sad? My my city, my homeland, the, the people that, I, uh, that are mine... Our, our city is destroyed, God's name is uh, mocked, and all of these things, and he is, he's able to, to go and um, uh, to, rebuild, uh, to rebuild the walls. But before he, he goes, I also want to make this observation. Before he goes, um, and when he first hears this news, his first response, Nehemiah's first response, is to pray. And so the prayer of Nehemiah is kind of the framing, it's the starting point for the whole story. And so everything that is going to happen after this, I think is meant to be seen as an answer to prayer, that God is hearing the prayers of his people and that he's moving. And if you just read Nehemiah's prayer. It's just uh, laced with hyperlinks to the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms. And he 
leans upon and speaks about God's covenant with Moses and Deuteronomy and his steadfast love and faithfulness uh, and his forgiveness and all of these kinds of things. And it's, I mean, all the things that honestly we all lean on. And so the story of Nehemiah's rebuilding effort is, <coughs> excuse me, like I said, is framed as this answer to prayer that God is being portrayed as actively at work in the world to do exactly what Nehemiah had prayed for, mainly the ending of exile, the forgiving of sins, the establishing of God's kingdom, and all of these, the, the prophetic package that we've talked about. He's, he's pulling on all of those same threads in his own prayer, in his own way, and he is still lamenting the fact that the people and the, the covenant and the promise are still not fulfilled. The The city is still in ruins. How can God come and the Messiah come and all the things that the prophets spoke about? How can the nations flood to Jerusalem when the city is burned with fire, when the walls are torn down, when the gates are destroyed? How could that be? And so Nehemiah prays, and God is seen as actively at work in the world. And we can't spend too much on this because it's just, I think, too big of a question. But I think it is important for us to just pause even at that fact, that that just general basic observation, that Nehemiah hears bad news, prays, and that the story then is framed as the, the answering of Nehemiah's prayer as he is actively going by the Spirit of God, with the hand of God upon him, as an ambassador for God to bring about God's will, and that God is being portrayed as actively involved in the world. And I think we need to just pause and reflect on the nature of prayer in in our own lives. Because I think there's you know, there's there's multiple ways I think that we can go wrong when we think about prayer. One is to say that prayer is where we we get to, uh, as one pastor I know says, that we, we tell God to do the things that we want God to do. And there's an element of tr- truth in that, and we see even Nehemiah, I think, leaning on that. But there's, uh, I think, that easily turns into an unfaithful understanding of prayer uh, because it becomes about us r- governing and making decisions and knowing what's right and what's not and how things should work and how things should not and who should do this and who should do that. And it becomes really just an exercise of our own power and God becoming a tool for us to exercise our own will and power and all of that kind of stuff. And and that turns ugly very quick. But we can also swing the pendulum too far the other way and say that prayer is only about personal formation, uh, that prayer doesn't really change many things, but it changes us, and then we change things. And again, there's a a truth to that as well. And again, I think we see that in Nehemiah here. He is the one weeping. He is the one lamenting. He is the one repenting for the sins of his people, calling on the covenant uh, of God, uh, speaking of the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God. And it moves him to actually go before the king and request to be sent. So 
as he is praying, things are changing in him, and he becomes the answer to prayer. So there, there is an element of truth. But surely prayer is not just about something happening in us. Prayer, over and over, the Bible depicts prayer as changing, as being a, a tool in which God changes things in the world. I, I don't understand how I don't understand the mechanics of all of that, but somehow, I think in Nehemiah, we we can see a way to hold those two things together. That Nehemiah both become, is formed in a way that he becomes an answer to prayer, but the story is told in a way that as if God is the one who is doing it. It is his hand upon Nehemiah. It is him coming to visit his people. It is him speaking through Nehemiah and the the prophets. And so prayer is both of these things simultaneously. It is the word of God to us as we hear, and that forms us. But then as we speak the word of God back to him, it goes out into the world and it accomplishes what it is meant to do. And not as much, I suppose, that our prayers change things. I don't think in a way our prayers change much of anything. It's that we pray to the God who changes things. So in a tangential way, our prayer changes things. But it's not as if my prayers and my words float out into the atmosphere and actually do things. No, no, my, I'm praying to the God who, whose hand is not short to save and whose ear is not heavy to hear. I pray to the God who pulls people out of the pit. I pray to the God who restores and heals. So he is the one doing it. And somehow, mysteriously, our prayers, they don't get God to be any more good than he would already be. And this is, I've, I've learned this and picked this up from my friend Chris Green. And I think he's spot on here. That we, in prayer, we don't convince God to be any better than God would already be. God is good all the time. He is all kind, all good, all powerful, all loving, all the time. Our prayers do not convince God to be better than God would already be without us and without our prayers. God can be no other way than He is, which is good and loving to all people at all times, in all ways, in all places. Somehow, though, our prayers affect the way in which we experience that love. And there is mystery there, which I don't want to just throw out because then, you know, sometimes that gets used as a scape card, a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. But there's, I think this is a place that is actually true. There, there's, we're out of our depths at some point there. And we don't understand exactly how all these things work. But we have to be able to say, I think like Nehemiah, that we have to take responsibility for our own sin, the sin of our people, the sin of God's people, the sin of our nation, our city, whatever it is. We have to be formed by God's words spoken to us that that moves us out into the world. Uh, But we also have to say that this is the hand of God doing this. This is not me. This is the hand of God. So there's, there is a both and and a tension here that we don't need to pit the hand of God and our work against each other. 
We don't need to pit the work of God and the work of humans against each other. Sometimes in our conversations about that, we we slip into this, the work of God over and against the work of humans. And there's we have to find a way, I think, to talk about those two things together in partnership, that it is both the work of God and the work of people by the Spirit of God together simultaneously, and they're not in competition with each other, and they're not diminishing one another. So God's work doesn't diminish our work, and our work doesn't diminish God's work. And so God's work doesn't you know, diminish our prayers, and our prayers doesn't dim- don't diminish God's work, and or vice versa. They, they mutually benefit one another and are synergistic in some kind of way. Okay, that's enough on prayer. We, we could go on more forever about that. Um, so I'm going to skip skip now to chapter 2, uh, where we meet Sanballat and Tobiah, which are the two main kind of instigators here. They're the two main bad guys in, in the story. Um, Sanballat was most likely the governor of, of Samaria, um, we have some later evidence of him being the governor, uh, but he's from, we're told, the, the region of, of Bet-Horan, uh, which is part of Ephraim's inheritance and the place where the Canaanite worship persisted uh, after the days of Joshua, and you can go read about that. Tobiah was likely the governor of Ammon, uh, although uh, the name Tobiah is Jewish and not Ammonite. The, the man could be, or this man could be related to Tobiah that's listed in Ezra 2.60, which is one of the long genealogies, and that Tobiah in Ezra 2, a hundred years ago, uh, was rejected from the Jewish community because he couldn't prove his Jewish ancestry. So some people, commentators said, well, maybe maybe those two are obviously not the same because there's too much time to pass, but maybe it's part of the same family, and that's why now this later Tobiah in Nehemiah's story, uh, why he is opposing the work of Israel, because his family was ostracized from the people uh, when they when they first came back with Zerul. But both these players play a, an integral role um, in their opposition to the work. And I, I want to make one final observation here, and then we'll we'll wrap up this episode. But this is so fascinating to me. Um, and I'm, I'm pulling on um, a uh, theologian and, and commentator here named named Thronvaint. He m- made this observation. To me, it's just absolutely stunning. Uh, you can find the quote here. I actually just quote him at length in in the notes on page 44. Uh, but in, in chapter 2, uh, and even a little bit actually in chapter 1, we get the repeated words of Tob and or Tov and Ra, which if you don't know Hebrew, that probably doesn't mean anything to you. But they are the words good it's essentially good and evil, right? And so over and over, um were and but when you read uh, make this one more observation here or point here, they're not translated good and evil. They're translated as trouble or sadness for for Ra, which is evil. And Tov is sometimes translated as pleased, or the gracious hand was upon uh, upon him. Uh, that's the gracious hand of God. 
uh, or that they um, they were opposing them, the people or Nehemiah who came back to seek the common good of of Israel by um, uh, rebuilding the walls, and so you anyway you get this this repeated these two repeated words in tandem uh, over and over and over, and then you get this phrase in chapter two verse ten which I am actually just going to, to read. Uh, and it says this, But when Sanballat uh, the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, if we were to if we take a look at the, the Hebrew here, um, it says that they are greatly displeased, which is the word ra, which can be translated evil. And then it says that they were displeased that someone, and literally the, the, the word there is adam, or some human. So it's not just someone, it's literally that a human, that an adam, came to seek the welfare or the tov of God's people. So in this verse in 2.10, you have Adam, and you have good, and you have evil. Now, where else in the Bible do we have Adam having to work through good and evil, or have good overcome evil? Right. This is this is uh, in the biblical author's mind, in Nehemiah's mind, or whoever is writing this section. This is. Uh, a battle of good and evil likened to the garden. That Nehemiah is set as this Adam kind of figure, but in a in a positive sense. He's a, a kind of second Adam. And obviously we know Jesus is the true second Adam. But he's kind of this, this next Adam, this human, this some human, this Adam who has come uh, to overcome evil with Good, and he is going to to do that in all kinds of ways to rebuild God's temple or uh, to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. And when we just tie this into the larger narrative of rebuilding the the temple and the tabernacle and all of the Exodus narrative or all the uh, Second Exodus stuff and all of the ways that the garden is tied into both of those things, we see this picture beginning to form of how the biblical authors want us to view this story, that this is not just a rebuilding project. This is a battle of good and evil, like the snake in the garden. And Tobiah and Sanballat are are the the snake-like figure, to borrow the Eden imagery. They are the snake-like ones. And here comes this second Adam who has come to do good to God's people, to try and crush the head of the serpent, to try and destroy them. Now, we can make that easy connection backwards. And now we can just make that easy connection forwards. And we'll look at this at length here in a couple of, of episodes when we get to the very end of of the book in, in Nehemiah 13. Is they, Nehemiah, like the first Adam, fails at this task. 
He doesn't actually do it. And in the end, we're going to see that these characters continue to come up and cause trouble to the very end, that they don't actually get overcome. Because Nehemiah is just like another Adam. He is not the human. He is some human. He is not the second Adam. He is some Adam, right? He is not the one that is to come. He is just someone who has come. And although he tries, he will end up failing in this entire project. And so as everything else has already failed and leaving open the end of the story for we are still awaiting. We are still waiting the human being. We are still waiting. I mean, I th- the verse that is coming to my mind even right now as I'm speaking is when uh, Jesus is brought out in front of the crowds of people and Pilate says, behold the human being. In most of our Bibles, it's translated behold the man. But in the Greek there, it's actually just behold the human. Behold the human being. And so we have, we have the human who is coming to do good. And he does good not by killing his enemies or picking up swords like Nehemiah is going to have people do. He tells Peter, this second Adam, this one who is to come, he tells Peter to put down his sword, right? And we can begin to draw all of the contrasts there. And I don't want to make all of those connections for you. That's not the point of, of this podcast and this series. So I want to just point out how we can how we can begin to make those connections by just reading slow. Here you would need some kind of tool online or a book or a commentary or Bible software, something like that, to see the, the pattern of, of the words. Um, but once you see it, we can just pause and we can begin to make all of those hyperlinks all over the place and begin to see that this story here is not just a story of rebuilding. It's a cosmic story of good and evil that has all of the weight of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Uh, and obviously then we know that it fails and we can then we can bring Jesus into that story and we can compare and contrast and how Jesus does things different than Nehemiah and so on and so forth. And so um, I, that brings us to kind of the, the end of this first little little uh, subsection. And so we'll just pause there. We're going to pick up here in Ezra 2.11 in the next episode. And we'll actually, or uh, Nehemiah 2.11, excuse me. And we'll actually be able to get through, I think, basically the rest of this section all the way through through chapter 7 in the next episode we'll be able to I think move through it pretty quickly because most of the story is pretty familiar but um, so if uh, if you haven't hit the subscribe button please do would love for you to share this as well if it's been a blessing to you uh, rate it and review it on iTunes or wherever uh, and then also make sure that you check out the Substack feed uh, and the episode uh, that I released on this feed um, from one of my reflections that I wrote for for my Substack um, a little while ago so Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.